have it. So it's said in the description of the class for the introduction to the Yoga Sutras workshop, uh, do you know what a sutra is? Have you ever heard the name Patanjali? Well, if you're a yoga practitioner interested in where yoga came from, then this workshop is for you. The Yoga Sutras, written by the first celebrity yogi, is required reading for teachers, students, and is an enlightening, wise, concise work that is the guidebook to, uh, to the philosophy and practice of yoga. And it's also a really challenging book to comprehend. So as we spend time together learning and discussing and understanding this incredible ancient document, we're gonna literally read the sutras together. So one of my first questions, and some of you can answer if you'd like to, but um, how many of you actually um, have read the Yoga Sutras yet before you started your training? Kind of? Good. Translation. Yeah, a translation. Yes, 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 yes. Um, we're going to read actually them together, and that's why you have a couple different handouts from me. The first one, your cheat sheet, where we're going to discuss kind of um, a good uh, overview of everything, and, that, and then we're going to bounce between the cheat sheet and the book of the Yoga Sutras. We're going to go through all four books together. So I printed out a simple translation and uh, one that seems appropriate. And I also um, offered you this cheat sheet, which is what we'll start looking at, is the cheat sheet. Um, what we're going to learn is truly a little bit of what I had mentioned this morning, how self-realization has no power unless it is lived. And we're learning mind training at its core as we go through the uh, sutras. We are really learning uh, how to find balance and harmony and get rid of pain and suffering. And I have this quote that is from uh, Satchitananda that I wanted to say out loud here to you. If you don't pour water on your plant, what will happen? Hmm. It will die slowly, wither, and go away. Our habits will also slowly wither and die if we not, do not give them the opportunity to manifest. You need not fight to stop a habit. Just don't give it an opportunity to repeat itself. When we're practicing the Yoga Sutras, we're going to learn a lot about how to cultivate the seeds of mindfulness and to cultivate evenness, because that truly is yoga. So in before we jump right into this kind of description of the sutras, I just wanted to pass around two books. Living Your Yoga is a great book by Judith Lassiter that kind of brings yoga sutras into a woman's perspective, and she describes how it relates to her life. And then... I love this translation by a man named Chip Hart Ranft. His last name is spelled H-A-R-T Ran, R-A-N-F-T. And these Yoga Sutras are really good descriptions. And so we can look through them uh, during a break. Um, I really appreciate those two books. Um, I also recently wrote an article that's up on Medium, if anybody does Medium about kind of the sutras and how it relates to uh, life today. Uh, it's just a really quick like four minute read, but it's very similar 
um, what the, the Yoga Sutras are teaching are very similar to um, Deepak Chopra, Andrew Weil, Wayne Dwyer, you know, all of these, Eckhart Tolle, um, uh, Brene Brown, uh, um, even Oprah, right? Like all these things that she has on her Super Soul Sundays and all these life coaches that are out there right now in some way, shape, or form are teaching you to take a breath, slow down, and realize that your thoughts don't have as much power over you and that you can be integrated and whole if you just begin to be present to the fluctuations of the mind but not get caught up in that turmoil. Because there's always a calm at the center of a storm. So I think it's pretty funny that this person, Patanjali, uh, uh, was credited for uh, taking and uh, writing down this great work of material that we're going to be studying today. I'm going to describe him when we get to that point. But if you turn to your cheat sheet, we're going to really study here timeless principles that are relatable in the universe. And this is important um, for people who are very religious because this goes alongside any belief system or spiritual doctrine. You're really learning how to, just as a life coach people are, just as the self-empowerment people, just like all this stuff that, you know, Oprah is kind of shilling, <laughs> um, to be vulnerable and to be present and to uh, not get trapped in the fluctuations of the mind. So this concise work describes an early stage in the philosophy and practice of yoga. And this work shows dualist and Buddhist influences. And I put an appendix in here to kind of talk about dualism. Dual, as we know, is like twofold, right? But monotheism would be like Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam, the three main Abrahamic religions where only one supreme being exists. And dualism in yoga philosophy is rooted in something called the Samkhya Vedic Yoga philosophy, which is Tantric Yoga. And we talked a lot about that yesterday when we were doing, talking about Kundalini and energy. And um, it's the idea of like the seer and the seen, where you're kind of like two distinct aspects of reality, where you can observe your thoughts, but not own all of your thoughts, right? Um, and so that's where the idea of dualism comes in. Um, the Vedas, Upanishads, and Buddhism also kind of touch on uh, uh, yoga sutras a lot. So a lot of Buddhist philosophy is very similar. If anybody has a meditation practice and they started doing uh, like a Tibetan uh, Vipassana or uh, Buddhist meditation or Zen practices, you'll see a lot of similarities as we go through the Yoga Sutras to that. That's kind of neat. But if you're interested in um, yoga and meditation, I really tell people that this is required reading. And then they're like, oh my God, all I want to do is like stretch out, right? I just want to get a yoga button. <laughs> I just want to get strong arms. 
But actually, the physicality of our practice is really secondary to everything that um, happens on the mat. Um, once we get out of our own way, <laughs> seriously, and just allow ourselves to flow masterfully with the breath, it becomes this beautiful infinite loop and that dance of Shiva, right? That we were kind of uh, talking about, that dance where Shiva and Shakti are constantly working together. And when you think about it, as you move the energy along your spine and you're practicing and you're opening up these nerves and lines of communication, it's never specifically balanced and stuck or stopped. When you practice, it's always moving and flowing. And that's how the mat starts to translate to life. When you can ride the waves of your practice with grace and find the levativity and happiness and freedom from your thoughts, that will start to manifest in the real world where you won't get stuck in a conversation with someone and then be like, right? And want to pop their head off. But you'll be able to like see from new perspectives and step back and zoom out instead of being stuck in the center of this like heated, maybe negative land. I think it's pretty fascinating. Uh, this is this document called the Yoga Sutras is said to be the most enlightening spiritual document of all time because it's a, has a, it's a guidebook and guidelines to classical Raja Yoga. Because you're teaching literally mind control, you're teaching meditation, you're teaching self-study, a little bit of metaphysics, and a little bit of ethics. In a lot of ways, this is like the guide to right living for maybe a, a, a land that was very chaotic and needed a sense of uh, structure, right? So almost like the Ten Commandments or the um, golden rules that we teach kids. Hmm? Um, just like a map in, uh, in life, how topography changes, this is a compass to a true, more, a true north and living authentically. Have you ever read books that are like talk about finding your true north and your northern star and stuff? Yeah. So that authentic living comes from this. Um, it's 196 compact aphorisms or observations on the nature of consciousness and liberation. And if you haven't figured out yet, I like the word moksha and I've been saying it a lot, but moksha means liberation or freedom. And that's the ultimate goal of our experiences. We're literally cutting to the heart of the human dilemma. And that's why I always say it's funny because Patanjali is like the first therapist or celebrity yogi. Whomever Patanjali was would have had a great Instagram account. <laughs> yeah. You're bringing consciousness into a state of stillness. It's a path to realization because it is the foundation of classical yoga. It gives us a program on how to fill the primary purpose of consciousness. 
It's been said it's an inward quest to realize our true nature. And it's a way to extract happiness, contentment, and meaning from the mysteries of life, consciousness, and mortality. Pure awareness resides impervious at the core of each and every kind of sensation, thought, and feeling. Whether we see it, and that's a vidya, which means true identity, or not a vidya, which is ignorance. And the routes to knowing this freedom fully is yoga. It's a habitual practice. And that's really, really important um, because it's a lifestyle. It's not something that you like say, oh, I'm going to uh, be yogic and try to find evenness in my experiences today. And then the next day, I totally go off the rails and, you know, do something really inappropriate or something that would land you in jail. You're really trying to create, and this word is becoming extremely popular, especially I read a lot of entrepreneurial magazines and um, news stuff um, in the world that I live in for my business. And um, uh, ritual and routine are huge words right now. But we've already known that if you had studied the sutras or were a person who was studying or a part of any um, you know, organization, routines, repetition, and um, ritual are a huge part of feeling connected, right? Um, a sutra means a words of wisdom. Sutras are a thread, a string, or a lace, or a line that hold things together. And the word itself is derived from the verbal root siv, meaning to sew. So some people say that yoga sutras are rules hanging together like threads that interconnect, right? And kind of create the wholeness of yoga. What's interesting to me, and I kind of described it today in practice, when you inhale and your ribs expand, right, you create space. But as you exhale, you're trying to stitch your ribs together and really push out and churn out the air. So as anybody, um, we hear of bellows breath, a teacher might say in, in uh, especially old times, uh, bellows breath. But has anybody ever used a bellows on a fire? So it's got a little funnel, and then you hold on to it, and it looks like an accordion, and you push out the air. But that's the same thing that we're supposed to be doing with our breathing practices when we're doing yoga. But what is the first thing that happens when we're stressed out? Hold we hold our breath, yeah. right? What's the first thing that we do when we're anxious? Breathe fast, fast yeah. and shallow, right? So most people only breathe about 30, 40% of their breathing capacity. And all we're doing as teachers, and I know it seems like a joke, especially when kids are like getting like, woo, right? It's all right here. So how can we get everybody to just breathe? And that's why I made a joke when I first met all of you that my job is the purveyor of the oxygen cocktail. Because most people have to relearn how to breathe. Like literally, 
We are teaching people how to breathe because most of us are silos of grief. And then it gets trapped in our cells. And as we're learning, the energy gets blocked and then we don't flow. And when we don't flow, we're effed. And so we're really, really working to create this sutra. Also, not just um, the interconnection that this these four books created for human beings, but also we're using the sutras as the balance between an inhale and an exhale. There's always this beautiful inhale and exhale that merge together. So Patanjali, and I'll pass this around so you can kind of see it. Um, Patanjali was the first... Uh, uh, yogi to kind of be represented as um, the person who wrote the Yoga Sutras. But his personal history is shrouded in mystery and myth and legends. Practitioners believe that he or she lived around the second century BCE. And um, Patanjali was a Renaissance person who wrote about science, Ayurveda, and Sanskrit. Um, so like metrics, music, alchemy, all of that cool stuff. And that bronze statue picture that I'm passing around um, kind of shows you a gentle fellow on there, right? But it could have been an uh, outcome of a cooperative group, that effort that spans several generations. So I like to think of that, um, the person who is credited with expounding yoga's teachings and writing them down um, wasn't just like one person, but actually a collective. I mean, that's my thought processes. And then it doesn't have to be a man. It could have been a woman or maybe a group of people and some of them were women, right? The way that this used to be taught, the Yoga Sutras, was that it used to be passed down orally from teacher to student. And that's where the word guru came from. So what's interesting is that um, uh, whomever this individual is, this picture that I'm passing around, um, they were the first person to actually write it down. Just like, you know, like in the Bible, that used to be stories until they were written down because they were passed orally from teacher to student. Um, one thing that I really want to emphasize through here is that um, guru, the word itself, means out of the darkness and into the light. And that's really huge because if someone told you to jump off a bridge, and they were telling you that they were their, you were, they were the, your guru, right? Or to drink some Kool-Aid, you know, would you do it? And what I want to, uh, uh, you know, reiterate again, over and over again, is that what we're teaching people is to find that the guru is within themselves. You are turning on the lights yourself. You are waking up yourself, not that uh, a teacher should say that they're like, follow me or be charismatic or a Svengali. 
because that's not authentic because they're using their power for evil. So that I, uh, every time that you are studying, that you might have someone that you follow or you might have a group that you're involved with, but not something that becomes a, a bad thing, right? So that you always remember that that experience and that opinion and that guru is within and your practice is teaching you to open up and find that beautiful sacredness within your heart. Um, what I like about the word Patanjali is that it can be roughly translated as falling down from heaven and you're offering sacred knowledge coming from the heart, right? So Pata is falling down and Anjali is consciousness coming into you. And when you put your hands in that energetic seal, um, of, of Anjali Mudra, it shows the balance of the Ha and the Ta, which is interesting because that's what we're teaching is Hatha Yoga, which is uh, 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 described in the Yoga Sutras. And the idea of um, the name is just so beautiful because we always do this Anjali Mudra. So we're always honored, honoring and bowing to this collective group of individuals who wrote down the sutras to teach us how to live a good life and created these guidelines. Uh, what's interesting when you noticed on the picture is that um, uh, Patanjali is sitting on a coiled uh, serpent and that is all about the imagery of kundalini, right? So the idea of being aware of the presence within us to dissolve illusions and delusions. And when we're practicing our breath and we're receptive and open with this meditative insight, we can remove obstructions. Patanjali um, was shown to be a great dancer. That's why there's a lot of rhythm and movement. Um, the serpents that surround the head, these amalgam of serpents in are in, is, is in human form. So he's like half serpent, half man in this picture, but lots of times it's just all man laying on a couch with a serpent um, like shading him. The human face is in silent equanimity, right? So it's not like all twisted up or it's kind of like that Mona Lisa smile where everything's just really kind of balanced. And um, the three and a half uh, coils not only represent Kundalini, but they also represent the idea of Om, A-U-M-A, where we write Om now in America, but the a-U-M is the three-coiled serpent. A-U-M-A. And then that space, that dot above, is called a bindu, where you transcend all space and time and you kind of let the resonance vibrate. It's kind of interesting, huh? Um, what's interesting, too, is that the serpents on the top are always represented as a thousand serpent heads 
Now you know that is the thousand is the the seventh chakra. Yep, crown chakra. Mm -hmm. So if you uncoil the and tap into the ohm, you have created space and tapped into your life's purpose, your authenticity, your true nature, your higher states of consciousness. So in the picture, he has four hands uh, as he sits on the lotus flower. So the conch shell, it means that, bless you, conch shell is, means that a person is ready for obstacles. They are attentive and alert. And they are, um, it's almost like a siren, you know, Boo, a call to action. <laughs> um, the discus that is being held in the other hand is for protection or the destruction of ignorance, right? So if our chakras are spinning the right way, right, there are those burning wheels, that means that you're like literally destroying ignorance. And then the sword is about cutting the ego and purifying ourselves. So all these symbols are kind of showing how you're really um, kind of ready to get rid of the stuff, just like our meditation we did, that no longer serves you so that you can really be purified and ready for a higher place, a higher purpose to do great things in the world once you calm the fluctuations of the mind. And the snakes are singing because they're listening but not getting distracted or swept up in their current. They're literally sitting there singing but he's in equanimity with his hands in his mudra because he's not getting flustered. So it's really interesting how symbolism, it, you know, like we are in a culture of logos, right? Mm -hmm. And so we see like, you know, a yellow circle and a red circle and in the center where they merge, it's an orange circle. We're like, oh my God, MasterCard, right? We already know what it is. Like I see a monkey and I know that it's MailChimp, right? Or if we see, you know, different symbols, we know what they represent. That's why so much symbolism is built into um, Hindu philosophy. And there's so many gods and goddesses because they were kind of showing different ways to, for right thinking. Some of the key concepts that we're really learning when we're practicing in um, the Yoga Sutras on your cheat sheet on the last little segment of your first page is that you're studying Shtira Sukha Asanam, the balance of the effort and the effortlessness, the balance of um, positive and negative, the balance of the inhales and the exhales. So it's like not, it's like Goldilocks. And her porridge, which is funny that I just had oatmeal for breakfast, my porridge. It's not too hot and it's not too cold. It's just right. And that's what we're learning through this process is to find the evenness and, and stability and serenity 
uh, and harmony even when things get a little bit tumultuous. Uh, anyone come into this space having no idea what the Yoga Sutras were? Just a little bit? Okay. Very little. Very little. Very little, yeah. Um, I always tease people like, Yoga Sutras is a band. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it's philosophy. It's really heady stuff, right? And um, we're going to try and simplify it today. So does anybody have any questions or uh, comments on so far what we've looked over on that first page of the cheat sheet? Everybody's okay? Timeless principles that are relatable in the universe. And there are four books. And all that we're learning, just like what we learned yesterday from our nerves discussion, is that we're finding equanimity in our body and mind to get rid of pain and suffering, to find happiness and balance, and to create a better, healthy, more uh, balanced human. And it doesn't contradict any religion that you are affiliated with. It should only accentuate your beliefs. Yeah, you like that? As we turn the page, it's going to get really exciting. So book one and book two are a little bit more intense. Book three and book four start teaching you about magical things and um, how to bring this, uh, all the, the superpowers that you receive from uh, uh, practicing habitually and making this a routine and a ritual in your life. But if we turn to the second page of your cheat sheet and we go into book one, just like what we did with the chakras, let's say these out loud, okay? Um, samadhi, samadhi, pada. pada. Right? Okay, so samadhi, pada. And it means integration or on concentration. So do you know what pada is in Sanskrit? No. Yeah, foot. Hastas and padas, right? So when you're padahastasana, your hands and feet in a forward fold, right? Yeah. So the idea of samipada, uh, samadhipada, is that it's on cognitive absorption. Patanjali opens with the big picture, a roadmap to where we're going, to the state of samadhi itself. But it is the foundation, Exciting, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, now we're going to read the first chapter together on concentration. Mm 